Discover new technology and endless comfort with Victoria's Secret's number one collection, Body by Victoria. With over 3,500 five-star reviews, see what all the hype is about when it comes to their best-selling styles. Their latest innovation features lightweight construction that provides support where you need it without an ounce of padding. Experience unlined perfection with the nearly undetectable Invisible Lift Demi Bra, or comfortably reduce your bust line by up to one inch with the Invisible Lift Minimizer Bra. Available in cups A through G and bands 30 to 44, that's 43 sizes in 22 styles. Shop now at your nearest Victoria's Secret store and online at victoriasecret.com. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Welcome to The Laverne Cox Show, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. She had this part, and when she gives Alfredo the portrait, Prendi queste l'immagine. You know, but I did it alla scatto. Prendi queste l'immagine. We used to call that the scotto meow, kind of like, it was like a cat meowing. And she got it, totally. And she loved it, because... Well, it was about her, and what diva wouldn't love something that's about them? Welcome to the Laverne Cox Show. I'm Laverne Cox. You've just heard the Bella Voce, the beautiful voice of Iris Sif, performing as his alter ego, Madame Vera Gulupe Borscht, one of the founding members and the prima donna of La Grande Chena Opera Company. For those of you who may not be familiar with all the opera terms we use, there is a glossary of opera terms in our show notes. I was about 10 years old, and I was watching PBS, and they'd announced that Leontine Price was going to be on. I knew who Leontine Price was because my mother gave me a black history book when I was six years old, and I used to stare at the photo of Leontine Price. She was wearing a turban, and she had these high cheekbones and these very full lips. I thought she looked like me, and I was just transfixed by this photo, but I had never heard her sing. 
She's standing there in this sort of militaristic stance and she opens her mouth and the most beautiful, awe-inspiring sound comes out of her. And it felt like this oval of earthy vibration coming at me through the television. I just remember shaking as I heard her sing and I was hooked. It was that moment in 1982 watching PBS and Leontine Price that made me a lifelong opera fan. Leontine Price was a huge fan of La Grande Chena and referred to Ira Siff as Madame Ira Siff. Founded in 1981, La Grande Chaine presented loving spoofs of opera, where all the women's roles were performed by men in drag, singing an exquisite operatic falsetto. She said of the company, La Grande Chaine is unbelievable. Iris Siff is one of the greatest artists in the world. Though they are calculated to be a spoof, they are the finest singers I have ever heard. They have everything that is top drawer in an opera ambiance. I just adore them. I met Iris Siff for the first time in 1996 to study singing. Not only did I want to sing opera, I had hoped Ira could help me with a vocal transition, if you will, from bass baritone to soprano. If I ever have made a beautiful operatic sound, it is likely because of Iris Siff. He is an unparalleled performer and vocal artist. In the year 2000, he began to direct operas. Mr. Siff writes for Opera News, is a weekly contributor for the Metropolitan Opera Broadcast, gives riveting lectures on opera for the Met Opera Guild, some of which are available in podcast form. You must go check them out. I believe Iris Siff to truly be a national treasure with exacting and uncompromising standards, yet beautifully encouraging and supportive. Not a lot of people have been in my life for over 25 years. I truly love Iris Siff. Like Leontine Price, I believe he is one of the greatest artists in the world. Please enjoy my conversation with and celebration of Madame Iris Siff. Hello, Ira. Welcome to the podcast. How are you feeling today? I'm great. I'm happy to be with you, Laverne, of course. I had to begin the podcast with the way La Grande Chena performances often began, with the uh, Ride of the Valkyries from Wagner. How does it feel for you in 2021, 60 years after, this is your 60th anniversary of going to opera. How does it feel to hear that in this moment today? Well, it's very nostalgic, of course, because it's about 30 years since that particular performance. Although we we sang Valkyrie, I don't know, 500 times during tours between 81 and 2002. So when I hear it, it really takes me back. And I feel Two things, of course, and you will understand this being the perfectionist that you are. I think, wow, that was exciting and fun. And then I think, oh, I wish I'd done that note better. 
Mm. Is there ever a moment when you can listen to yourself and not have critique? (laughs) I, I would say no moments when I don't have critique. But in spite of that, I can hear things that I actually approve of. Oddly, things probably later in my singing career where I feel technically things were really in line, even though the voice wasn't as fresh and easy as it had been. Mm -hmm. But then I think, oh, there's some really serious, mature artistry going on here with the comedy. And that makes me kind of happy. So I wanted to begin with what inspired La Grande Chena and your love for opera. And I want to start um, 60 years ago with that iconic year that Leontine Price made her debut at the Metropolitan Opera and an Australian soprano named Joan Sutherland also made her debut at the Metropolitan Opera. And you happened to be there for La Stupenda's debut in, in New York City. Can you tell us about how you found your way to the opera in 1960? <laughs> well, I was 15, and it was very strange because uh, I met this kid in high school. He was what we would now call, I guess, a nerd. But I found him endlessly amusing and very intelligent, and his parents were into this thing called opera. I knew nothing about it. My parents had taken me to Broadway shows. I saw a lot of great, you know, My Fair Lady, Gypsy, all these great musicals and plays with original cast, but I'd never been to the opera. And his name was Robert, and Robert said, well, come over to my house and we'll go in my parents' finished basement and we're going to listen to this new recording that just came out of Lucia de Lamamore. I had no idea what that was. With Joan Sutherland, I had no idea who that was. And I'll prepare you with a libretto and then we'll go to the Met and we'll see it. So I heard this thing and I followed it with the words, the Italian and the English. And I was, you know, it was nice. Then I went And we stood all the way up in the family circle standing room, miles from the stage. And she began Mm -hmm. to make that noise that she made in 1961. It was something extraordinary. I'd never heard anything like it. And by the end of the big mad scene that climaxes the opera for the title character, there were something like 28 curtain calls. The place went berserk. She was astonishing at that time, darting up and down the stairs all over the stage while trilling and doing this incredible virtuosic singing. So I I was, I was completely blown away. And I left my poor friend Robert in the dust and started going to the Met in standing room two, three times a week, telling my parents I was in school doing an art project, making up all kinds of excuses. My father worked on the next block when he would pass by to go home to take the subway to go to Brooklyn, where we lived. I would duck down behind some other standee so he wouldn't see me. <laughs> Why did you feel you had to lie to your parents about going to the opera, Ira? What, what was going on there? <laughs> well, it was it was kind of viewed as a kind of freaky thing, I think. And also, I think that I was supposed to be doing things like homework. And for me, you know, this turned out to be my homework. I was just preparing Mm -hmm. to be a diva, but I didn't know it then, you know. So there were nights they knew I was there and there were nights that they had no idea where I was. 
Mm. Joan is such an interesting diva because she, you know, she's Australian and she began her career when she, when she got to Covent Garden, she thought she would be singing Wagnerian roles. And right. that's what she was sort of being groomed for until she met Richard Bonning, who became her husband. And he had a different vision for her. He thought that she could sing the bel canto roles because she had a very big voice. And then she discovered this this coloratura and this flexibility and this agility and this and this beautiful upper extension that is just insanely remarkable. I mean, you know this better than me. <laughs> what would you say about that? Well, there are a couple of things, I think. One is that Richard had ears and he could tell that there was a lot going on north of high C. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he just tricked her into it. He would vocalize her up without telling her how high they were going and take her to E flat when she thought it was C. It was very clever. Mm. But Joan's mother studied, she studied with a student of Matilda Marchese. Marchese was the great voice teacher mm-hmm. in Paris for years and years, decades, between the late 19th and early 20th century. So Joan just aped her mother. And she learned how to trill, that incredible trill, just sitting on her mother's knee, you know, at the piano. So mm-hmm. her technique was, in a way, the most important part of it was self-taught. And then the exploitation of it in a very positive sense was Richard, Richard bringing that out and just defying all the powers that be at Covent Garden saying, no, she should be singing Gilda, not Aida, you know, and finally they mounted that famous Lucia for her. And that was her breakthrough. And that Lucia like sort of broke the, the opera universe. Can we listen to a little bit of that Lucia from Sutherland's debut season at the Met? How do you feel listening to that now and thinking about, I mean, certainly there's nostalgia for you, but then the singing is just still so exquisite. How does it feel listening to that now and then thinking back to, you know, 60 years ago? Well, I feel grateful that I was taken to that performance, but I also feel this great thing that it isn't a nostalgia fest, that it really was that good. Yeah. There's so much documentation of her work and other people I worshipped, Kalas and, you know, others that shows us that, no, it really was like that. It really was that exciting, virtuosic, impressive, and incredibly disciplined. Yes. For me, when I listen, I mean, it's just so exquisite. I think the speed, the agility, the trill is just insane. I, no one has ever trilled like that before, I would, I would argue, and since has trilled like Joan trilled especially in her heyday. It's just so virtuosic. It's so thrilling. It's so exciting. I just don't know how anyone could listen to it and not just lose their minds. (laughs) It's an extraordinary thing. It's something that Mm -hmm. came from then that we don't really have now. We don't hear people trilling that way any longer. All of Marchese's students could do it. And uh, Sutherland really had it to the very end. Even when the voice got older and other things weren't the same, that remained the same. It was extraordinary. And, you know, I, I, 
don't want to be one of those people like back in the day when singers did, well, you know, whatever. But it's so fascinating to me that one of the things that you said, I think, um, many years ago in a voice lesson we had, that the stylist changed because there's no, the maestros, the um, conductors who sort of groomed divas back then are, you know, we don't have those great conductors anymore. So, so much of style has been lost. What I hear is I feel like there's a lot of, a lot of over-darkening that's happening, particularly with sopranos now. And I don't feel like there's a lot of squealo is what I hear yes. when I hear a lot of singers. Can you explain what over-darkening and squealo, short for squilante, means? Sure. Well, squealo <laughs> is, is, is the frontal kind of ring in a voice, a bright sound, ah, rather than oh, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And over-darkening would have been the second thing that I did. I, what would be the caricature opera voice for somebody who doesn't like opera? It's very dark kind of sound. I think part of it, there are so many facets and layers to this. One, I think, is language, that operas were performed in the languages of the country. And the Italian Mm. language, like the Spanish language, is extremely forward in placement. And that kind of production has gone somewhat out of fashion. And the style has changed since the, I would say, since the LP, since the 50s, and opera recordings, luxurious opera recordings in echo chambers, Mm -hmm. it became more about the homogenized sound and the evenness of the sound that the engineers were so proud of that didn't really carry the excitement of what the voices were like in the opera house. But even more than that, Laverne, composers were writing for the voices. They were writing for the singers. And singers today, because the art form hasn't progressed very much in new works, singers Mm -hmm. today are stuck singing stuff that was written for somebody else hundreds of years ago, and then trying Mm. to fit their work into that framework. That's tricky. So I have to give them credit for that extra struggle. Interesting. So much of what I would I would argue has propelled your career is diva worship. Absolutely. <laughs> These particular divas who inspired you and kept you going to the opera, and you list a few. And um, after Sutherland, Leonie Riesnick was the diva who really captivated you. Can you talk about the first time you saw Riesnick at, at the Old Met? Yes, first time I saw her was oddly not a Wagnerian or Strauss role, but it was Desdemona in Otello. Mm. And uh, there had been death threats against her by fans of, I think, Tibaldi and Milanov. People were very passionate in those days. Why were there death threats? Well, can you can you give us? Yes, because she had the well, she was going through a bit of a vocal crisis time, and she had the nerve, according to these people, to sing, take up space, singing the roles of the divas that they appreciated and thought, well, why would you want to give her Desdemona when we have Milanov or Tebaldi? So they actually threatened her life if she went on. And the first time I saw her, she was so intensely exciting. There were moments that the audience burst into applause just because she was so exciting, like their confrontation duet in the third act with Otello, where he threw her to the ground and people went crazy. But she made a curtain speech and she said, uh, please, if you don't like me, don't come to see me, but please don't threaten to kill me. And that was my first experience and I was hooked. I mean, I thought this woman, and she was what we used to call on the standing room line, demented, which in those days simply meant someone so fearlessly abandoned when they sang that they were lost in the role. Mm. And she had this upper register 
the likes of which I've simply never heard in my life, that was both rooted to, let's say, her toes or really her private parts, and yet sparkled as if it was emanating from the chandelier of the house at the same time, suspended. No idea where it came from, but it was a phenomenon. That's so fabulous. It's really just what you were talking about when we were talking about Wagner, that there was, it's hard to tell in a recording, but the voice feels very big, but it is soaring and it is, it, there's no weight on it, but it's very dramatic at the same time. It's very rare. Can't think of any singer, honestly, who has that level of being a dramatic soprano, but is that floated in, at, at the top of the range. Only Nielsen, but it wasn't the same intensity different, of though. sound. It's different. Pingy and detached. This was somehow rooted yet suspended. It was a, a real, it was a mystery. And you would just go and you would just wait. I mean, everything she did was exciting, but you would wait for those notes because no one could sing like that. And that is something I can say I have not heard since. For me, it feels very bel canto. I think there are different bel canto schools and there are different schools of singing. It feels very connected and feels very legato, but it is it is drama and it is forte, but it is floating. The voice had so much human vulnerability that it, it, she broke your heart night after night. And that's something, you know, you just went back for that kind of emotional draw, that kind of emotional pull. You would leave sweating and in tears. Mm. Thinking about these two divas that we've talked about so far, are, what do you feel, is there anything specifically in this in a Sutherland or a Riesnick that you feel like you've you know sort of brought into Vera? There was, with Sutherland, uh, I mean, I, I began singing in falsetto, you know, in my parents' basement when they weren't home to her recording The Art of the Prima Donna, 16 arias, and very telling in that giant, beautiful, luxurious LP set, there was a booklet. No libretto, no text to any of the 16 arias, but each aria was associated with the diva. Well, that certainly warps your orientation about opera in a certain direction. Mm. So for me, it was all about divas and what you could do pyrotechnically. And so with her, it was more an influence of the florid singing I did and of my diva worship. And also the phenomenon of like a, a prize fighter with lipstick. I mean, vocal athlete. Riesenick inspired me just as on stage, I never held back and I never walked through a performance and I never, I wish I paced myself more. I tried, but I would always end up carried away. Mm. And Riesenick was more an inspiration that way. The voice, I would refer to the voice in certain notes. And when we had crazy, crazy fan audiences before the AIDS crisis decimated that, they'd recognize it and they'd scream, you know, but, but for me, she was more an inspiration than a direct vocal thing. Sutherland, Caballé, Scotto particularly were more direct voices I drew on to make the amalgam that became Madame Vera. Mm -hmm. But Riesenick was an inspiration of an artist who gave everything to her art, everything. Amazing. I have to tell you that I 
had Joan Sutherland's Art of the Prima Donna that I got from the Mobile County Public Library on cassette. And that was my first Sutherland. I had to be in middle school or something. I was absolutely obsessed. It's time for a short break. When we come back, more with our guest. Discover new technology and endless comfort with Victoria's Secret's number one collection, Body by Victoria. With over 3,500 five-star reviews, see what all the hype is about when it comes to their best-selling styles. Their latest innovation provides support where you need it without an ounce of padding. It's all you. With lightweight construction and technology that smooths, shapes, and supports, these silhouettes are designed to conform to your curves for a natural-looking fit. Experience unlined perfection with the Invisible Lift Demi Bra, a style that moves with you and is nearly undetectable under clothes. Or comfortably reduce your bust line by up to one inch with the Invisible Lift Minimizer Bra. Unbelievable and unforgettable, there's more to explore when it comes to Body by Victoria. Available in cups A through G and bands 30 to 44. That's 43 sizes in 22 styles. Shop now at your nearest Victoria's Secret store and online at victoriasecret.com. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Alrighty then, let's just dive right back in. We have to get to the diva who inspired so many people in the 20th century. And you count her as one of your uh, main inspirations. 
Maria Callas. Can you tell us your relationship to Maria Callas the first time you heard her sing? This is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a saga because it began with a trip to Corvettes, this department store that no longer exists in New York City, to buy Jones Lucia album for myself. I mean, Robert had it, but I didn't have it. And it was sold out. And I was just crestfallen. And I was looking through the bins of LPs. And there was this picture of this woman, this head on an album cover with kind of magic marker eye makeup. And the most fantastically compelling thing I'd ever seen. And it said, Lucia de Lammermoor, Callas. And I thought, hmm. And it was just a highlights album. I, I thought I, I didn't want to buy a complete thing because I didn't know really much about who this was. And I took it home and it was the strangest voice I'd ever heard in my life. I thought something is wrong with the turntable. So I had my parents call the repairman. <laughs> Seymour, the repairman came to fix the turntable because the vibrato was so slow in this voice. And I thought there's something wrong with this. And Seymour said, there's nothing wrong with the turntable. There's something wrong with the soprano. So what year of Collis was this? Do you know? 59. It was her second Lucia. And while she was recording that Lucia, by the way, in London, she went to the dress rehearsal of Sutherland's debut Lucia oh, yeah. and attended it. So then I would just go back to this recording for certain phrases over and over and over. I couldn't stop listening to it to the point that I wore it out. So then I went to the Brooklyn Public Library, like you. That was the source with the No Budget. That's where you went. Mm -hmm. And I found earlier Kala stuff, Ipuritani from 1953, La Traviata mm -hmm. from 53. And I thought, holy crap, this voice is something bizarre. It's no more beautiful than the other one, maybe even less, but rock solid, virtuosic, heart stoppingly exciting. So I just started to take any allowance money I had, any money I could find, earn, beg, any gift, and bought Collis recordings, mm. one after another. And that's all I spent my money on through high school was Collis recordings. Wow. And I was completely addicted. And then I was at summer camp, and there was a little feature in the Times that said Maria Collis was coming back to the Met where she'd been fired seven years earlier. And so... My friend Lex, who was my opera friend at summer camp, he phoned me in Brooklyn and he said, get into Manhattan. I've got a number for you on the Collis line. And it was Friday, six days before the performance. And <laughs> I said, why? What is it? What? He said, yeah, they're selling on Sunday. I got on the line and I stood in the street for three days. I slept in the street for two nights. And on Sunday, they sold standing room tickets for the first performance. The second performance, I totally lucked out. My mother belonged to some Jewish lady organization and somebody there didn't want to go to the Kalas Tosca on their subscription because she didn't like that lady. So this lady sold my mother her two tickets. So I got to see both Kalas Toscas at the Met and those were her last performances at the Met. And six months later, she retired from opera. So I was really lucky. And all I can tell you about that night was that watching Carlos and Tito Gobi in the second act of Tosca was like looking through a keyhole at real events. 
that were later made into an opera. It was that vivid. She was known as a, as, as a great actress. Now, you, you spoke of Riesnick with this abandon, you know, in, t- in terms of the drama of the opera. What would you, I mean, not to compare, but what was the difference for you with, between a Riesnick and a Collis in terms of just the drama that they would bring to, to something? I think it depended with Collis on what the repertoire was, because Tosca is a verismo opera. So, so in other words, it's, it's a realistic opera. And real that, people. Verismo was about real people, and opera before that was sort of more about like kings and queens, and it was it wasn't like about working class, you know, real folks. Exactly. So Tosca is about a, a singer and uh, a chief of police who's who wants to molest her and her boyfriend, who's an artist. Callas was very naturalistic in Tosca, and her, I was so lucky. Her acting worked on two levels. The first night. I was downstairs in the standing room, very close to the stage, and I saw her eyes, her hands, every nuance. Second performance, I was sitting in the family circle in the seat that my mother bought, and I saw the geography of her performance. Like when her boyfriend is dragged off stage to be tortured by the chief of police, and she darts across the stage and bangs on the door where he's being held. You saw this streak of red velvet when she ran across the stage and fell on the door. So it was it was very thrilling. But make no mistake, Kalas was a vocal actress, and uh, that's why millions of people love her from her recordings who never saw her live. It was, uh, she was the complete artist, I think, the greatest complete singer of that particular century. Amazing. And what is um, brilliant, too, is thinking about the standing room line. And you, in other interviews, you've talked about the young people that you met on the line and the, the, the term the opera queens that you met on the line. You say you saw um, two men kissing for the first time on the standing room line at, at, yeah. at, 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 for, for the old Met. Yeah, yeah. It was wild on that line. I mean, that line was an initiation for, you know, sort of bar mitzvah boy from Brooklyn to a wonderful world that I fit right into, but I was so shy and reticent and kind of shocked by it that I didn't immediately participate in it, but I made friends on that line who were crazy like I was, but so generous with what they offered in terms of their knowledge and experience. And they would tell me what to go see. They tell Mm. me, you have to see Milanov and Albanese now because Bing isn't going to take them to Lincoln Center. So you better see them now. They only have a few years left, you know. And So I got to see a couple of generations of singers. It was the end of an era for certain people and mm. the beginning for other people. It, it, obviously, there is a whole generation of opera queens who we lost because of the AIDS crisis. But there was a, there was a certain kind of culture of the opera queen that... <laughs> That feels like a bygone era. And, and Wayne Kastenbaum in his book, The Queen's Throat, talks about the opera queen as being sort of a pre-Stonewall kind of thing. Now, obviously, there's still opera queens, but it felt like there was something very different. You know, I mean, I can't imagine someone, you know, sort of camping out overnight for three days to get opera tickets now. You know, but, I, but there were clubs, too, you know, a Milanov Club, a Gibaldi Club. I mean, people gathered together 
and the birthdays of the divas with them, brought them presents. I mean, it was a whole thing. I wasn't too active in that because I was just a little younger than those people and very shy. Mm-hmm. But I know people now who um, have tons of photos and early, you know, eight millimeter films of those gatherings. Incredible. There's a lot of sort of acclimating into what it means to understand divas. And for the people who aren't opera fans out there who might, you know, follow Mariah or Beyonce and the fans are very hardcore or Nicki Minaj fans are crazy or the, you know, the beehive. It's like it's it's a whole thing. But it is something that like I know that they were older queer folks who were like, oh, you must listen to this or you must listen to that. And there's something that is sort of passed down that that feels, when I watch interviews of, of you and I hear you talk about the folks that you met on the standing room line at the, at the Met, I think that there's something so beautiful about that because it it made you who you are and also sort of set, laid the groundwork for something like La Grande Chena. Oh, the lore, you know, the, the opera lore that these people passed on to you. And they would invite you over to hear everyone had big reel-to-reel tape recorders with recordings of pirated recordings of live performances, not studio Mm. recordings. And you'd go, you'd stay at someone's house till four o'clock in the morning listening to Leone sing Die Frau in a Schatten that the Met hadn't even ever had yet. You know, Callas in Anna Bolena or Medea or, you know, these were things we never heard. They weren't put out commercially. And it was, and people wanted to watch you go crazy listening to this stuff. It was a huge, generous sharing thing. And I ended up doing it with people Mm. when, you know, I got a collection of stuff. Yeah. And what a wonderful treasure those pirate recordings are. A lot of them are on YouTube now, which is very exciting. Um, You know, Leontine's debut, the pirate recording of Mm. that on January 27, 1961, is on YouTube. And it's very different than any Tachiello Note that she ever sang. The tempo was very fast and she sang a D (laughs) instead of a C sharp. And it was really quite thrilling. And she holds it for like four seconds and it's the excitement in the room is really incredible. So those pirate recordings are just, they're really kind of everything. And they, and they were mostly gay men <laughs> who were obsessed with opera, who were making these pirate recordings. Maybe they were sort of, you know, people who weren't gay men, you know, doing this. Oh, it's but true. It's just, no, it's true. Yeah. But, and, and it was, oh God, they, they were so crazy. There was one guy, Roger Franks, who put out really, I think, only Collis stuff. And he would release it sharp. He would release it intentionally sharp. So the record was speeded up a little bit, just a half tone, so mm-hmm. that that meant that her vibrato would be faster. So then no one could criticize her for having a wobble. So then you had to buy a turntable that had speed control in order to play his pirate recordings of Collis. Because, of course, you wanted them all, but they played fast. So if you wanted to hear them at the correct speed, you simply got a turntable that had variable pitch, which was slightly more expensive, but you did it. And, you know, so that's how obsessively crazy they were going to fix the flaws of their divas on these pirate recordings. 
there's a lot more divas that I want to cover with you, but I want to begin to transition into you as the, as a diva yourself. I was fascinated as I was prepping for this, and I've known you for 25 years, but I did know that you would get together with some of your you know friends who you would met on the standing room line, and you would sing in falsetto, and you would sing you know sort of in in your late teens and early 20s, and you said you had this beautiful like extension up into you know F above high C, and then mm-hmm. you st- when you started to train as a singer in 1970 and made your day you as a tenor, eventually you started studying with Randy Michelson, who discouraged you from using falsetto. So you stopped using falsetto for, for really a decade. Is, is, is that right? Yeah. No, unfortunately, it's right. I mean, he really helped my tenor voice, but that was something that I think had no future. I think I knew that, but I was kicking around. I never had trouble finding shows to be in. Mm-hmm. But it was finally not until an accident in 1980 that I wanted to take that to the stage, by which time I had done a lot of performing, but never, well, a little bit of falsetto in my cabaret show, imitations of Renata Scotto and uh, a jazz singer called Betty Changes, whom I invented, who scat sang very high. She she couldn't stop scat singing. She had to be physically restrained from scat singing at one point. But uh, a fan, you know, came to one of my cabaret shows and, and invited me to a soiree he was doing. And I could tell from the names and the invitation and everything that this was going to be a drag soiree. And, and his name was Mario Villanueva. And uh, his cousin Eduardo, the other diva, was going back to the Dominican Republic, back to med school. So Mario said, would you like to do this with me? So I thought, it's now or never, because by then I was like 35 years old and the voice, I hadn't worked the falsetto voice in a long time, except in my cabaret show a little bit, but it wasn't you know, anything like what it had been. So I had to work it back up. It took a long time and really finagling technically and found a pianissimo which saved me because to sing softly and float tones seemed very virtuosic, but it was at the same time really a rest for me vocally. I found a a good trill, you know, but it was a lot of work to resurrect the voice, but I knew I just had to do it. I just knew this was going to be what I wanted to do. Did you do it on your own? Because I I know um, you worked with Randy, but then Randy discouraged the falsetto. No, I did it entirely on my own. I I, I stopped studying with Randy, but not out of any, uh, just happened, you know, that I phased out into teaching myself. Uh, But I, no, I developed the range entirely myself. And it was really based on the technique I learned from Randy, a bel canto technique I learned from Randy, which I applied to it. But it was also a kinetic thing I could always do when I was younger that I just had to tap into. The muscles wouldn't do everything they did when I was 16 or even 20. but mm-hmm. Because they don't. <laughs> <laughs> but they would do enough so that I cranked it back up and could. the first thing I ever sang in public was Turin Dosa. You know, in Questoregia, which is a tough aria. <laughs> it's hilarious. Like the first thing I ever sang in public was in Questoregia <laughs> from, <laughs> from Turin Dode, which is an insanely difficult aria. <laughs> that was the first thing you ever sang. I didn't know that. As a soprano. Um, yeah. yeah. As a soprano. Yeah. Yes. That's incredible. So you, how long did you practice before you could even have the stamina to sing that aria? I mean, it's like a, it's a beast of an aria. 
it took about a year to get the voice back up wow. and to build the stamina in that register. And it took a toll, I think, of course, on my tenor voice, but I didn't really care. This is really mm -hmm. what I wanted to do. I wanted to sing this music and play those characters. And I was so lucky that I found stage directors, two stage director friends of mine who understood something. I didn't know how to do this. And they said, well, what you have to do is you and Mario have to be these fictitious divas. And then depending on who these divas are, that's how you play your opera roles as these divas. So it was a triple layered show. There was me and then there was me as Vera. And then there was Vera as Turindo or Tosca or Lucia or Traviato, whatever I did, mm -hmm. the way she would do it. What was the hallmark of her artistic personality? Well, it was obviously like reasoning, dedication and dementia on stage, but it was like Callas discipline, like Sutherland accuracy in coloratura. So all of my training I didn't know was training from when I was 15 to when I was 35 coalesced into this creature. And I had to learn the first night that I sang in Questoreggia, the first line I did with Slavic accent, because Vera is from the Ukraine. So I copped some Milanov, who has a Slavic accent in Italian, and I sang in Kvesta Regia, in Kvesta, instead of in Questa, with a Slavic accent. Then I suddenly learned that I had to hold for laughs, because the audience knew what that was and that that was funny. And so then I had to pace my way through opera arias holding for laughs like a stand-up comic, which was very surprising, but also delightful. And then you get to rest a little bit too. <laughs> and it gave me a nice rest. <laughs> well, I learned to milk that. I remember Marnie Nixon phoned me once and said, don't start playing it for laughs. The good thing about what you do is that you don't seem to know it's funny. And so she was right, because you could start to think, mm, if I do three takes, I can get six laughs out of this moment. But then it just becomes... Shtick. 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 And that, you know, when you're parroting an art form that's also tribute to an art form, the last thing you want is to trash the art form. So the quality has to match the art form, not make fun of it. I think the beautiful thing is, and you've spoken often about how Charles Lutlem's Theater of the Ridiculous inspired you to create these very loving spoofs of opera, that it was not something that was ever mean-spirited or we wouldn't trash divas, even though there were, you know, <laughs> there were moments where, you know, we made fun of, but there was always the love there. Can you talk a little bit about the intention, I guess? I think that uh, Charles Lutlem was my main inspiration. Absolutely, undoubtedly. Definitely. When I saw him do Camille, I wanted to do Traviata. And that was the first extended scene I did in that show where I opened with Turandot. I did the whole last act of Traviata. That's how the evening closed. And I got to tell you, when I had Sutherland in the audience and Scotto and Aprile Milo and Cheryl Milnes and Jimmy Levine, I was never as nervous as when Charles Ludlam came to see mm. us perform and the Traviata was in that program because this was the person I learned what it was to walk the line between tribute and spoof, between drama and comedy, to be able to make an audience laugh and then cry. Charles Ludlam 
absolutely was my inspiration from the get-go. He wasn't a singer at all. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do with what he did and the line that he walked and the way he walked that line. In his Camille, there's a moment where he staggers across the stage to a statue of the Virgin when he's dying and goes, oh, Mary, when he arrives there. And- <laughs> It's like, so you are, you're in tears because he's so frail. And then he says that and the whole audience is screaming with laughter. Fantastic. We have a little bit of of a clip. One of my favorite performances of yours is your Violetta in Traviata. The Munich recording that we're going to hear now, I think was in 1985 or 87. Munich, 85, yeah. I'm utterly obsessed. I'm obsessed with your interpretation of Violetta. That performance made me want to sing that aria. I still haven't quite gotten it yet. Um, There is something so, it's obviously just so sublime what you do, but it's also hilarious. You know, Violetta has tuberculosis and she was dying. She was was a sex worker and she's in love with this man. And so she's, she's dying in this aria. And it's so touching, but it's hilarious, hilarious. What do you, when you hear this now in this moment, what, what, do, you, what do you think <laughs> about your brilliance? I think I like the London one better. But aside from that... Um, <laughs> There's always that. You always love this one. But, but, um, yes. Why do you love the London one more? Uh, the refinement in the singing to me is... Uh, it, yes. This one's raunchier. I was also sick in Munich. So they, we were on German television and I was sick. We never would have known that you were sick, though. You don't sound sick in that recording to me. There's just something. It was just so funny. This Munich one was hilarious for me, the timing of it. Well, they were amazing also. That that audience was 1,100 people in a sweltering tent. That's partly how I got dehydrated and got sick because we did it night after night. This was the last night. And mm. they gave so much to us back. I mean, they were they were phenomenal. But I've got to say, Peter Schlosser, who was one of my stage directors, we workshopped this. He had been in the actor's studio, Traviata. Mm. And he had this way of working that was so organic. So for six months, we worked the final act of Traviata, starting realistically, that I was a guy. I was fatally ill, which in those days was beginning to happen, Mm. just beginning to happen. And we had to work in this very realistic way. And Peter came up with the idea of a box of mementos that Violetta has when she's dying, that she has kept keepsakes of her love affair with Alfredo. So handcuffs, an all-day sucker. You guess what that was? I have no idea. (laughs) Oh, I have ideas. (laughs) Well, yeah, we all have ideas. There was also a riding crop and some, and briefs, a pair of, you know, but... But they were sweet, nostalgic items and then hilarious. And each one more outrageous. It started with a handkerchief and then, you know, and built to the underwear. I never knew that you workshopped that through the actor studio process, which would be character private moments and animal work sometimes and sense memory and all of that stuff that you did that (laughs) for your Violetta. Yeah, 
Yeah. I love it. What I got out of it also was there are things in the phrasing, just who she really was. I got so deep into someone going through that and who she really was. So when I would get to sing a line, like when she's telling Alfredo to marry someone else and, you know, keep this keepsake portrait of me and go marry a sweet young virgin. And she sings the, there, there's the pure virgin for you somewhere. And I get to, mm. because you, know, <laughs> you put an edge on the word virgin because, of course, mm. she's not. <laughs> yeah, she's not. So we dug so deep that it did actually affect the interpretation of the Italian libretto as well as coloring the singing. And I was not afraid, you know, to twist the voice or Peter even said to me once, it doesn't have to be ugly to be expressive, my dear. But I wasn't afraid to twist the voice like that to make a point. That would Mm -hmm. be something funny in the middle of when everybody's already in tears because she's dying. That's so brilliant. I think, you know, you got really incredible raves from so many different places. And I, I pulled up a few of your reviews here. The New York Times in 1987 wrote, One need not be a connoisseur of opera to enjoy the antique musical comedy of La Grande Chena Opera Company, the all-male operatic troupe. At the same time, these artificial sopranos have a surprising resilience and intensity. Along with abrasive coloratur shrieking, there are fleeting moments of genuine lyric beauty. The company's understanding of operatic conventions and the singer's allusions to more than half a century of real divas gives the fun historical dimension that will appeal especially to opera files. La Grande Chena Opera Company reminds us that beneath the pomp and magnificence of opera, at its most serious and spectacular, there runs a deep streak of silliness. <laughs> What I love about that review is that it really echoes so much of what we've been talking about. The education that you got in the standing room line, watching all of these productions in the old house, the new house in the 60s, sort of the education you got from the queens that you met. There's such a depth of understanding that went into what La Grande Chena did. And I think it's not a mistake that La Grande Chena led you to so many other aspects of working in the, in a, quote unquote, the legitimate office opera world, but what what would you like to say to all of that? (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, I always tell people it it was the most circuitous route to the mainstream I could possibly think of to, you know, spend all that time on the standing room line with all these wonderful weirdos, including myself, weird, to be singing falsetto in my friend's lofts, uh, you know, when I was 21, and uh, to be in all these off, 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 Broadway shows and cabaret and then to put on a dress and sing Turandot and end up at the Met on the radio broadcasting from the Met and writing for Opera News and singing. I mean, one of the most astonishing moments of the whole Grand Chena thing was in Berlin, when we, the night that we opened for the first time in Berlin, I sang the mad scene from Lucia in that program. And this guy from the theater came up to me and he said, you know that you just sang the mad scene from Lucia on the same stage where Kallas sang the famous Berlin Lucia with Van Karajan. 
Mm. Well, thank God I didn't know that before the show. But yes, you know, things like that where you think, how did I end up getting here? I was given the the Medal of the City in Wiesbaden. I thought, oh, a Jewish drag queen being given the Medal of the City in Wiesbaden, Germany, (laughs) you know, after (laughs) performance. I mean, these things that you kind of can't believe, you just, you know, you sort of knock your head and go, what? Is this me? Is this really happening? You know? After a tiny break, we've got more for you. Discover new technology and endless comfort with Victoria's Secret's number one collection, Body by Victoria. With over 3,500 five-star reviews, see what all the hype is about when it comes to their best-selling styles. Their latest innovation provides support where you need it without an ounce of padding. It's all you. With lightweight construction and technology that smooths, shapes, and supports, these silhouettes are designed to conform to your curves for a natural-looking fit. Experience unlined perfection with the Invisible Lift Demi Bra, a style that moves with you and is nearly undetectable under clothes. Or comfortably reduce your bust line by up to one inch with the Invisible Lift Minimizer Bra. Unbelievable and unforgettable, there's more to explore when it comes to Body by Victoria. Available in cups A through G and bands 30 to 44. That's 43 sizes in 22 styles. Shop now at your nearest Victoria's Secret store and online at victoriasecret.com. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the first of the Vera Galupe Borsk Masterclass. We are back. 
Picking up where we left off. The taking of photographs is strictly forbidden, unless, of course, they are extremely flattering. Speaking of your Lucia, that moment in, in the mad thing when, um, oh, that section, <laughs> that section is one of my favorite moments in all of opera, that music. And I fell in love with it. I happened to be at a Grand Chena performance and it's on YouTube. And there's a moment Lucia has, has lost her mind. This is the mad scene. She has murdered her husband on the day that they get married. And she has, mm-hmm. you know, she she breaks down and it's quite something. But in La Grand Chena's performance, there you use a dummy <laughs> that is um, <laughs> your your murdered husband. And in that moment of that that particular musical moment, you slow dance with the dummy. <laughs> yeah. And it is hilarious but it is actually really sublime it's really one of the most beautiful things i've ever seen and i i'm crazy maybe but it is so beautiful can you talk a little bit about that well well, there was a logic to it i mean we thought of course we thought it would be funny if she is forced to marry a man she doesn't want to marry so she goes crazy and stabs him but you never see that we thought it would be amusing if she brought the dead body to the wedding party (laughs) so (laughs) I had to go to one of these um, adult stores in the West Village in Manhattan and buy an inflatable doll, which we then stuffed with fiber fill. At first, we used to blow it up and it kept deflating. So then we stuffed it with fiber fill, (laughs) dressed it in a kilt. Did it deflate in a performance or just in rehearsal? Well, it would slowly deflate during performances. So then we thought, oh, we better (laughs) stuff it and dressed it in a nightshirt and a kilt because it was Scottish. Um, (laughs) But the thing is that in the plot, Lucia imagines that she's marrying the guy she did love, the one she wanted to marry, Edgardo. So that theme is a recollection of their love duet from a previous act. And when it came time to sing that theme, she's steeped in the fantasy that she's really marrying Edgardo. And I thought, well... There's the body at that point was lying on the floor in front of me and I just picked it up to just waltz with it while I sang that because that was like the height of her fantasy of what she went crazy over being forced into a a forced marriage. Mm. It felt to me bizarre, grotesque and yet sweet at the same time. So I'm so happy to hear that it struck you the same way. I'm I'm really obsessed with it. I rewatched it and I just love hearing the way you describe it because there is that that piece of the longing for Eduardo. <laughs> with the the, the the flute. And is that just piano in your version? That was our first uh, Lucci ever. That was 1984 and uh we didn't have a flautist, so we, we had a synthesizer that did flute. But the way that um, the flute plays a melody and she sort of hears it and it becomes this signifier of her insanity and the voices that she's hearing, and it's just, it's, it's really sublime. It was fun to do, but when you hear the whole flute obligato, of course, you know this, but I do 
I, I drink from a cup that says Joan, and then I do Sutherland's ornaments, and then I drink from one that says Maria, and I do Collis's ornaments. Uh, so the conoscente went nuts because they could recognize all of this. And that was always fun to do. Yeah. Just was so great that there was an audience alive at that point, so steeped in this art form and culture in general that they just got it on all the levels, the comedy, the drama, the spoof, the tribute. Yes. Speaking of ornaments, there's a beautiful um, moment that, that, that you shared with us that I would love to play now. Um, your musicianship is really wonderful. talk about your, your pianissimo. Um, pianissimo is, is, for those uninitiated, is very soft singing, very quiet singing. And it, was that something in that year that you, you know, recreated, you know, reconstituted your falsetto? Did, did the pianissimo come right away? What was the evolution? Because it's, you know, a lot of people don't have that now. We don't hear a lot of this kind of singing anymore. When I started to sing in, in head voice, in falsetto, it was a very tight production to make the piano. I didn't know what I was doing. And it was very locked. Mm -hmm. And then when I had to resurrect the, the falsetto voice for Gran Chena, I was acquainted by that time in what marking was. Marking being the technical term for singing softly when you have to rehearse a lot and repeat a lot of stuff. And so at some point I was going up and I didn't want to go up full voice. And I threw it into an isolated head tone, uh, leaving out the heft the bottom of the voice. And yeah. I thought, oh, well, that feels like a freer way to do something soft. Hmm. So I started to work that and I found what I could do with it, what I couldn't do with it. It got, I think, better over the years. That condensed to a high A piano that you just played. I was 60 by that time. I found a pocket I could feed breath into a very high pharyngeal point on the vocal cords, which is a very slender point. So it produced a very slender, shimmery sound. Uh, and mm -hmm. it was a great way to rest and at the same time impress people. And I could hold a piano note for 35, 40 seconds, if I, you know, just to be silly. But at the same time, virtuosic, because you had to kind of mine what was special about what you could do. I didn't have very much vibrato when I started singing in falsetto, much to my disappointment. And so I sounded more like a Slavic sound where they, they're more hard and straight toned, the Russian kind of sound, Eastern European, mm -hmm. really. So I had to be Eastern European. Over the years, I tried to make her sound warmer to increase the vibrato and to warm up the sound for expression and beauty. Mm -hmm. And she morphed also from a matronly character with body pads when I first started to play her to someone more slim and kind of, well, glamorous, maybe is an overstatement, but glamorous-esque. Um, oh my goodness. I, you know, I'm a student of the voice and there's, 
the declining diva, right? It's really rare that a diva doesn't have some sort of decline, right? And and yeah. but vocal longevity is something that is a thing and that some singers have that most singers don't have. If there is a secret to vocal longevity, what would you think that that might be? I think I could I could definitely talk about what would cause vocal non-longevity. The vocal longevity mm. is partly genetic, it's partly genes and health and luck and then technique. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very important not to oversing. I did, I had to, we had to do five, six shows a week of opera, which is ridiculous. Just so folks know, when at, at the Med, in most opera houses, you'll still, and a singer will sing and then have two or three days off after they sing, right? But for Le Grand Chena and the way that you had to sort of make money, that you had to sing many back-to-back shows touring the world, which is insane. Um, yeah, Blasido Domingo was on The Tonight Show talking to Johnny Carson saying, oh no, we never sing more than twice a week, Johnny. You know, so, I mean, I, I thought, yeah. But <laughs> a way to shred your voice is to overbook yourself, to fly too much, which is is a Mm -hmm. problem these days. Singers used to have to travel by train or by boat, so they had these long enforced breaks. What is it about flying that, that that can be bad and detrimental for the voice? I think it's partly the dehydration and the dryness in the air in the planes. I think the jet lag time difference thing can be very fatiguing And uh, you also have to be smart about what you sing and shifts that you make. And so that's Mm. something you also have to do. You have to program for your voice for the time that it is, not for how it was 10, 15 years ago. Pavarotti tried that with Fidel Regiment, his big success at the Med in the 70s. He tried to do it in the 90s and, and, Mm. and couldn't. Of course he couldn't. You know, singers are driven by ambition now, I think more than ever, social media, networking, driven to sing things that they really shouldn't sing. And it's disrespectful for the work in a way also, because you're doing an insufficient job and you're doing a disservice to your instrument, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, Scotto's debut season at the, at the Met, I believe, in 1965. She sang Butterfly, I believe, was her debut, but she also was programmed to sing, I think, Lucia and something else crazy. <laughs> Elisia d'Amore, yeah, Lucia and, and Elisia d'Amore, two Tanizettis. Yeah, the debut Lucia was staggering. It was a bel canto artist in a Puccini opera. So one, one, you know, beautifully trained in one kind of field coming and bringing Mm -hmm. that to gutsier, bigger voiced role. So we all thought, well, she can't possibly sing Lucia. She's going to cancel it because you can't sing Butterfly like that and then sing Lucia two weeks later. But she did. And she sang Lucia with a different sound, more head tones, lighter, more what we were just discussing with piano. And it was fantastic because the orchestra is much lighter in Lucia and the acting was phenomenal. She was a very cunning artist who made a huge career with a not incredibly exceptional instrument. And that I admire more than anything. Mm. Anybody can be born with a pretty voice, but to make (laughs) your voice into something more than it is through your artistry is incredible. And she created fantastic illusions of sound that way and and theater that were just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. 
important to note that of, of all your divas, opera queens have you know our number one diva, and I think it's safe to say that Renata Scotto would be yours. Am I? Would I? I think I that Ren- I, Renata really is mine. I mean, there there are other people I have loved, like Sutherland and Collis and Riesenick, but Scotto was. We have sort of a what's the word? You know, we we love each other. I love her. Mm-hmm. She loves me because she knows that when I was Vera, I was partly her and that it was yes. a tribute to her, her work. And what Scotto did was she illuminated roles for me. I would see a role like Butterfly I'd seen many times, like I'd never seen it before. And that was her gift. She made you feel like you were seeing an opera for the first time when you'd seen it many, many times. She illuminated parts of it that you never thought were important before. And Kala said that ability to. Renata Scotto was also a very huge fan of La Grande Chena and, and went to many performances. And there is a brilliant story that I did not know about you going to see Renata later in her career. Can you please tell us this story? It is, it's kind of the, like this is one of the high points of my entire life. I saw Scotto, I don't know how many times, but I never, almost never talked to her at a party I would talk to her, but I mean, I really was not close with her until Mm -hmm. she came and saw my performance. Mm -hmm. And she was in very late career. It was like 2001, I think, or 2002. And she was singing a very unlikely role, Clytemnestra, the evil mother in Strauss's Electra at Baltimore Opera. And it was a real late career diva star turn, you know, so the whole thing was built around the fact that they got Scotto in Baltimore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was, and she was amazing. And and afterwards I, I kind of queued up just to go backstage because I'd driven all the way down to Baltimore to see her just to say I was there. And I thought she's not going to remember me because, you know, she saw me perform, but I looked like Vera and uh, I interviewed her for Opera News and we talked on the phone, but, you know, she won't remember me. So I was online to see her and her son, Filippo, came out and I, he said, oh, Ira, you're here. And I said, yeah, I, I just wanted to say hi to her. You know, do you think she'll remember me? And he said, are you kidding me? Anyone who comes into our house has to watch your video of Tosca. Just wait here a moment, you know. So then he ushered me in and in the performance, as Clytemnestra, Renata had worn this big, red French twist wig, which was exactly the same as the wig that I would wear on stage as Madame Vera. And I'm walking down the hall to her dressing room and the door to the dressing room opens and Renata comes out and she points to me. She says, today I did you. Mm. And it was just like, you know, it was having your, the person whose work you worshipped more than anyone Sort of, I don't know. I can't even verbalize it. Mm. It was affirmation of I get what you're about. You get what I'm about. And it was an, an amazing thing. There she was wearing that red wig and she looked like Vera. You know, but it, was, <laughs> it was just I remember once I was at uh, I was at a master class she gave for Cheryl Milne's voice of foundation. And I had to leave to go to a grand chain rehearsal. And she said, where are you going? And I said, I have to leave. I have a rehearsal. She said, what are you rehearsing? And I said, uh, Traviata, the death scene. She said, do me, do me, do me. So she had this part. And when she gives Alfredo the portrait, prendi queste limagine, you know, 
but I did it alla scotto. Brandi, queste immagini. She freaked. I mean, she was laughing hysterically. We used to call that the scotto meow, kind of like it was like a cat meowing. Brandi, you know, and she got it totally. And she loved it because, well, it was about her and what diva wouldn't love something that's about them. Absolutely. You have so many great diva stories, but I, can you please, as a Leontine Price, um, Leontine is my number one, the sort of first black prima donna of opera, Miss Price, um, came to a Grand Chena performance. Can you please tell the story when she came backstage and that beautiful moment with Miss Price? Oh, God. Well, she was so wonderful and she was such a great booster for the company. But this was the first time she ever saw us. And they wanted us to pose for pictures for, I think it was Newsweek. And so we got the my small company of singers together on stage with Leontine in her turban, her pearls looking stunning. Of course, it was uh, 1988. Mm. So we, we're standing there and I had sung this, the big second act of poker scene from La Fanchula del West, Puccini, which is very, very hard and has a big high C-sharp that mostly anybody who sings that role leaves out. But I had sung it. (laughs) (laughs) And Leontine came and she said, I don't know how you got through that fanchula because it had given her a bit of a vocal crisis for a little while when she sang it at the Met. She said, I just couldn't. I mean, I just, it was just too rough. Of course, I did have the C-sharp, and then she hit the C-sharp standing next to me, and I thought I had died and gone to heaven. It was spun gold that just went like a laser beam shimmering into the theater. That was just phenomenal. The thought of it gives me goosebumps, like Leontine Price standing next to you, singing a C-sharp, just feels like... My idea of heaven, it just feels like I just, it's such a gorgeous thing. Well, certainly it was mine. Yeah. For you now, if you could talk to all of the singers out there now who are, you know, working opera singers or if any genre, I guess, what do you want them to know? I mean, I know tastes have changed and it's it's a lost art. What would you say to young singers out there now? Um, I think it's something that you referred to and that's that the, the line in a way has been broken Try to discover, and Kalas always taught this, try to discover the line back to what you come from and really try to understand what's on the page that is there for you to mine and to pull out. Respect it to death and then make it your own. Do not be afraid to be vivid. Do not be straightjacketed into a generic safe thing because you're trying to second guess what people you're auditioning for are looking for Mm. and try to have integrity about the art form in terms of the score, the libretto, the vocal value and the characterization, because in today's opera world too often, you're going to not get that from stage director because it's going to be about the stage director's concept. And you have to hold on to your vocal personality, your artistry, your understanding of it, and get through that experience. Go to YouTube and start looking at things that begin with 19-0-something recordings to understand what you come from. 
Know what your lineage is, what you're part of. You're part of this amazing tradition. Mm. Learn about the tradition. Don't think you're better than the tradition. Oh, that's such beautiful advice. And what I hope people come away with today with our discussion is understanding that if you give everything you've got to something, that you are very, very serious and know everything (laughs) about it, that you can make something out of it. And you have made a life and a career out of a love for divas, out of a love for opera. And I just think that's the most beautiful thing ever. Wow. Well, thank you, Laverne. I'm somebody who works so hard with so much passion. And that's so important. It's crucial. We really... We mustn't become too sophisticated for things that that we don't see them with reverence and and with passion and, and not be embarrassed by passion. Yeah. I'd like to end the podcast with a question that comes from my therapy that is really about building resilience. It's the idea of both and even when something might be challenging in our lives, there is something that helps us get through. And the question is, what else is true? So Iris Sif, Madame Iris Sif, for you today, (laughs) what else is true? I find it to be, of course, a very challenging time that we're living in now and I feel I'm not sure that this is an answer to that question but an extension of what we talked about today that the love the passion the devotion that one puts into something like an art form to which one devotes one's life that that becomes an envelope that encompasses everything that you do that you approach everything with that passion, that love, that fierce desire to communicate, but also to receive communication, to understand what other people are trying to tell you, how they feel, what they think, who they are. Mm. Sharing in all possible directions and understanding in all possible directions. And then I think people also really understand you if you can do that. Even people you don't like. (laughs) Without the love for what we've been talking about today, I don't think I would have understood what love is that can be brought and extended to all situations. I don't know if that answers the question even remotely, but... It does. I'm actually in tears right now because because that just made me think about what happens with a diva on stage, the giving and receiving of love, right? There are moments when I, that I know you've experienced as Vera and I think probably as a lecturer as well, when the, when the audience is just enthralled and they love you so much because you've given everything you've got. And it's just this thing that you just, there's just not even words for it. You feel it, you know it, you see it, but you sense it more than anything. And you sense it in that, one moment when you finish before they start to scream, that you just feel the suspension and then it goes, you know. And that is why you're really, of all the things you do, you're a brilliant teacher. What you do at the Metropolitan Opera broadcast is you're giving that love. And when we feel it, 
And when I think about you, I think about all those people that we lost. Um, I mean, there was a caliber of artists that we had that we lost um, because of AIDS. And you are that caliber of artists who survived. And it is such a wonderful, wonderful gift to the world. Thank you for surviving. Thank you for the love and for the, the level of excellence that you embody by example. Everyone should be studying that, I think. Thank you, Ira. Well, thank you. Bless you. Thank you, Laverne. beautiful aria to end with. That, of course, is Dido's Lament from Henry Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. When I'm laid in earth, remember me, but oh, forget my fate. I hope we all will always remember Iris Sif. He and I share this desire to be transformed by the operatic voice, not only as a listener, but as the artist, as the singer, to become the diva. Ira has given me the gift to be able to, on a good day, croak out some sound that feels transcendent, that feels good in my body, and I'm so grateful to him for that. And then the connection, too, to this bygone era of queer opera culture that doesn't really exist anymore. Ira is a tribute to those old divas, a a living tribute and a reminder of what we can learn if we really truly understand the past, have reverence for it, that that can take us into the future with a sort of fortification, with a grounding. For those of us who are artists, I think it can make the artistic journey one that we know we're not walking alone. Thank you for listening to The Laverne Cox Show. Join me next week for my conversation with award-winning journalist, author, and producer, Mary O'Hara. She has written a powerful book called The Shame Game, overturning the toxic poverty narrative. For anyone who has struggled with shame on any level, you won't want to miss it. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share with everyone you know. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Laverne Cox and on Facebook at Laverne Cox For Real. Until next time, stay in the light. The Laverne Cox Show is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Discover new technology and endless comfort with Victoria's Secret's number one collection, Body by Victoria. With over 3,500 five-star reviews, see what all the hype is about when it comes to their best-selling styles. Their latest innovation features lightweight construction that provides support where you need it without an ounce of padding. Experience unlined perfection with the nearly undetectable Invisible Lift Demi Bra, or comfortably reduce your bust line by up to one inch with the Invisible Lift Minimizer Bra. Available in cups A through G and bands 30 to 44, that's 43 sizes in 22 styles. Shop now at your nearest Victoria's Victoria's Secret store and online at victoriasecret.com. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. 